Please pray with me. Father God, may what I say be from you and from your heart. And may it be useful and helpful and build up your body. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. Have you ever thought along these lines, I'm trying to walk with God, but I really don't understand just which part is my part and which part is God's part as I try to do this Christian walk? Is everything to be done by faith and isolation, just faith? Or is there any need, any place for my own efforts? The Scripture talks about the gifts of the Spirit, but, but what about those natural gifts that I seem to have been born with or the abilities that through human effort and training and, and perspiration I have learned and honed and developed? Are those useful to God at all? Can these be used by God or are they too much of, of human effort? Are they too much of the, the flesh, too much of this fallen nature, and therefore not useful to God? Are these questions you've ever asked or, or heard asked? I don't have definitive, specific answers for your particular situation, or really even for my particular situation. But as I read the Scripture, I see some principles. Some ways that God interacts with people. Some patterns. And I think they can give us some guidance in this. And the truth is, there's more than just one pattern of how God deals with human beings. And one place where we tend to commit errors in our, in our teaching and in our practice is when we'll study one pattern and say, that's it. That's how God deals with people. Therefore... And go running off to places that God has never asked us to go. One of those patterns, and it's a very popular one to study, is that God chooses to defy human logic and natural expectations. As when Jehoshaphat sent the singers out in front of the army of God into combat like that. Well, that's it. You just praise God. That's it. It's the only time in Scripture that was ever done in the armies of Israel. So is that really our pattern? It's a pattern. Or when Gideon was told that when he faced overwhelming enemy odds, that, that his army of 32,000 was way too big. And God told him to cut it down to 300. And then to divide those 300 into three parties of 100. And through that, God gave the victory. But how often did God do that in Scripture? Once. It's a pattern. But it's not the only one. 
And judging by Scripture, it's not the most common pattern or principle that God chooses. Although He does, to this day, still choose unlikely people and do unlikely things through them. But it's not the only pattern. Take a look at the portion of our text today from Numbers this morning, and you'll see what I think is a much more common pattern of Scripture. Numbers 11, 16 through 17, The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders, who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you, and I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the Spirit that is on you, and put the Spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people, so that you will not have to carry it alone. So who are the elders? Well, you probably have a good idea of it. Why might God have chosen them? The elders were people that were respected within that community. Choose people known as elders. Choose people known as leaders. They already were doing the task of leading. They are the ones that people already looked up to. And in the Eastern culture, elders were honored. So why choose them? For all of those reasons. That's why. God didn't do anything radical there. He told Moses to pick the most obvious people. The people that were already leading. The people that were already looked up to. There's nothing exceptional, nothing radical in God's choice of those elders. What might it have looked like if God had chose somebody radical? Well, if He told them to choose children or, or teenagers, that would have been pretty radical in that culture. God could have done it, but He didn't. He chose the most logical people. But then He did do something that's, that's radical. God set His Spirit upon them. And that's always radical. He set part of the Spirit that had been on Moses. So why did God do that when they were already leaders? What was the point? They were already leaders. God took all of their natural abilities, all of the wisdom earned through experience, all of the influence they already had in that community, and He transformed them. He multiplied it. He gave them, he gave them a fusion of His Spirit. To take them beyond what they had been, beyond what they could have been, beyond all of that to be truly useful to the kingdom of God. And I think most of the time, that's exactly what He wants to do with us. Or look at Moses himself. Who's Moses? Why would God have chosen Moses of all the people to lead His people out of captivity in Egypt? Out of captivity and then through a great desert. Could it be that, could it be that Moses really was the most logical person for the task? Apparently Moses didn't think so. Look with me at the calling of Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. 
And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses, Moses saw that the bush was on fire, and yet it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take the sandals, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then skipping to verse 9, And now, God said, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Who am I to do this? Who am I to take on such a task, Moses asks. And God's response to Moses is, what does it matter? I'll be with you. That's what matters. With that being said, what more needs to be said? But God could have given Moses some really logical reasons why he was the right person for the task. You see, Egypt was one of the mightiest nations on earth at that time. And the Pharaoh was seen as an absolute king, and more than that, the Pharaoh was seen as a god. And you couldn't just walk up to Pharaoh and say, Hey, howdy, how are you today? Think about it. How hard would it be for you to go up and meet President Trump? How hard would it be for you to get permission to talk to Putin of Russia? Or the Prime Minister of England? You can't just go, oh, I'm here to meet them now. So logically, who would you send to the, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? Someone who knew the culture? Boy, that would be a big help. Somebody who could speak the language? Yeah. Somebody who knew the proper steps required to get an audience, to get permission to talk to Pharaoh. And somebody who knew what to do when they got there. How to behave, what to say, what not to say. Do you remember the full story of Moses? Do you recall his background? As a baby, his mother had put him into a basket in the river. And Pharaoh's daughter found him, and Pharaoh's daughter raised him as, his, as her own son. If you don't know the story, it's in the second chapter of Exodus. And actually the whole Exodus story is one of the monumental great themes of Scripture. And you really ought to be familiar with it. But Moses had been raised in the court of Pharaoh as the grandson of Pharaoh. 
He knew perfectly well exactly how to approach Pharaoh. He knew the people you had to make contact with to get permission to come before Pharaoh. He knew the procedure. He knew the protocol. He knew the language. He knew it. Who else would you send? He was ideal. That's why I chose you, Moses. Moses was the perfect choice for that task. But then God also needed someone to take those same people to lead them out of Egypt and through the desert to Sinai. Who could do that? How about the guy who had been shepherding sheep around Sinai for a couple decades? Moses. Moses knew that treacherous desert. And he knew it well. There's a logic to it, isn't there? Furthermore, if you read the story of Moses, it is more than implied that none of this ever happened by accident. That God was the author of it all. Including the life history of Moses himself. Rather, from the, before the time he was born, God had been shaping the circumstances and shaping the events that shaped Moses. Moses was shaped for a particular time and a particular purpose. Even so, even so, without God's Spirit, Moses could never have pulled it off. He couldn't have even started. Without God's power, he could never have succeeded. Exodus 4, verse 1. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take the snake by the tail. So Moses reached out, and he took the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Some, of very, some very powerful sermons have been preached on that, what's that in your hand question that God asked. It's fair to ask us, what's at our hand? What's in Moses' hand? Shepherd's staff. It had been his companion in the wilderness for many, many years. It would have been stained with grime and grit from the sheep. It would have been stained with the perspiration from Moses' hand as he carried it back and forth with the sheep. Common stick. A common staff. In the hands of Moses alone, it was a normal wooden stick. But in the hands of God through Moses, in the hands of God through Moses, that staff defeated the, all the magic of Pharaoh's magicians when Moses cast it to the ground. And it parted the sea when held aloft so that the people of Israel could escape from the armies of Egypt. And when it was held up above Moses' head, it assured Israel a victory. So when? When was that stick just a stick? 
And when was it something more? Could you tell the difference? And when was Moses just a man? When was he that guy that had been raised in Pharaoh's court? And when, when by the Spirit of God was Moses something much more than that? And how would you know? God loves fusion. He loves to blend the natural and the supernatural in the lives of His people. So that at times it's hard to see where one begins and the other ends. And He still does it today. I think of David. (laughs) David the shepherd boy. Probably a teenager, but still seen as a nuisance to his his older soldier brothers. Generations after Moses, God's people still faced enemies. And one of those enemies were the Philistines. You probably knew them in history books as the Phoenicians. Among those enemies, there was a man who stood around nine feet tall at a time when the average guy was about five feet tall. Pretty intimidating. If you grew up reading Bible stories, you know that was Goliath. David's visiting the the camp of Israel's army, and he's there when Goliath marches forth as he had day after day, challenging God's people, saying, Send me out a champion to fight me. And whoever wins, hey, you guys win, I'll be your servant. We'll be your servant. If your champion wins, we'll be your servant. Now, if you think of this story as the story of a little boy with a slingshot, you're missing something. There was no elastic. Therefore, there were no slingshots. And David wasn't a little boy. He wasn't a grown man either. But he was big enough that Saul didn't have a problem saying, put my armor on. And he didn't send out messengers to say, see if you can find a size small chain mail anywhere in the, or leather mail anywhere in the, uh, in the uh, army here. Because David needs a smaller size. David was not a soldier yet. Not at this point. He's still a shepherd. As a shepherd, David had had to stand watch over his sheep day and night. Sometimes all by himself. Just him, the wild, the wild wilderness, and the sheep he had to protect and lead. David had never worn armor or wielded a sword. They're unfamiliar to him. But he knew the tools of the shepherd, the short staff, like a a cudgel, a club. And he had the long staff, the rod and the staff. He was familiar with those. And he'd used them. He had used them in the defense of the sheep. That's what he told Saul. God has 
given me the strength to defeat the predators that attack the sheep again and again. And God will give me the strength to defeat this enemy of Israel. You just watch and see. And David also had a sling. Slings were common in the ancient world. They're still common in the Middle East today. They weren't toys. They were easier to make than an arrow. They were easier to make than a bow. They were easier to make than a spear. But they were effective military weapons. And were effective military weapons until the advent of gunpowder. In the ancient world, in the time of David, they had a greater effective range than a bow and arrow. When archaeologists have dug up the, the ruins of city walls, they have found stacks of sling stones just waiting, ready to be hurled out at the enemies attacking the city. It's in all the ancient accounts. It's in Scripture, too, several places. I'll read you one account of, of slings. In First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and they were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones, right-handed or left-handed. In the time of David, as I said, there was no weapon with a longer effective range. And you know what else about a sling? It virtually would disappear because it was just a strip of cloth, of woven material. It could be hidden. It wasn't obvious. It could be overlooked. Let me read part of the account to you. 1 Samuel 17, beginning with 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. 
He said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And skipping to verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, so, uh, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. It wasn't at all what Goliath had been expecting. There was ritualized combat in the ancient world, and this wasn't it. Goliath had expected another guy in armor, like David was originally going to come out with Saul's armor, with a helmet and a shield and a breastplate and a sword, and they were going to have hand-to-hand combat. It's not what happened. He saw the shepherd's staff. He said, have you come to me with sticks? He may never have seen the slain. It's truly possible that he may literally never knew what hit him. But it did hit him. What's the point of this? David called upon the skills he had honed. He called upon the weapons he knew. He called upon what he knew he was good with. And he called upon his faith in the God of Israel to transcend his own skills and abilities as he believed God had done for him in the past. And God gave him the victory. We could accurately and correctly say that God had shaped and formed and trained David through those years of tending and defending sheep. And through those years of contemplating what David knew about God as he watched the the star-filled night skies outside of Bethlehem. As he watched over the flocks. And it all came together. It all met together in one singular moment as the army of God's people watched a unique victory unfold that day. God seems to delight in mixing together the natural and the supernatural, our own abilities with the power and the motivation of His Spirit. Our natural gifts and His supernatural gifts. In all of the history of God's interacting with human beings, this pattern has not changed. God takes the skills and the abilities that He's placed in our, our, our natures, our bodies. And He hones them through experiences, through training, and sometimes through suffering. And then, if we let Him, He uses these gifts at the precise moment of His choosing. At the moment of need. And what's more, 
by faith and by His Spirit, at times God takes us well beyond the natural boundaries of the gifts He's given us. Beyond the natural limits of our own abilities. And He works a miracle. In the economy of the kingdom of God, nothing. No skill, no experience, no suffering is ever wasted. Except, except the ones that you and I refuse to surrender. To surrender and put into God's hands. So, what's our part and what's God's part? Our part is to place what we've been given. What we've developed. What we've honed. To take them and put them into God's hands. For Him to use. For His kingdom. Our part is to surrender, to surrender, and to obey. It takes some human exertion, but it ultimately relies on the power of God. Because without His power, the desire wouldn't even be there. God's part is to advance His kingdom as He creates the victories that transcend what we've placed in His hand. Amen.